Foul Balls podcast for July 3rd, 2018, and it was a big sports day on Monday. It's crazy. It was Sunday night. LeBron signed with the Lakers. We had the biggest, probably the biggest star in the country, probably not the world because of soccer or whatever, signs with the Lakers, one of the biggest sports franchises in the country, less than 24 hours ago, basically non-news by Monday night, old news now, because DeMarcus Cousins signed with the Warriors right before I was about to start recording this, and I had a I had some stuff I wanted to rail against on Magic Johnson and some of just the horrendous moves that I thought he made today. And that happened this afternoon. That happened just a few hours ago. And that's old news already because the NBA offseason has just been crazy so far. But I'll touch on that real quick before I talk about the baseball games. I try not to make the podcast too long, so I will try to get through this pretty quickly, just getting my points across. But So the DeMarcus Cousins... Yeah, if he comes back totally healthy, the the Warriors are just going to steamroll everybody. At least the one thing that we could look at is that reports are indicating that Cousins isn't going to be ready to play until what looks like early January, which to me means that there's a little bit of some kind of setback with the torn Achilles because we've seen guys like Rudy Gay, Anderson Varejao, who were able to return in a shorter amount of time than what Cousins did. So to me, that means that some sort of setbacks, and also there's been no players who ever come back totally healthy from the torn Achilles, so I wouldn't expect DeMarcus Cousins to be the DeMarcus Cousins of before. Now, with that said, even DeMarcus DeMarcus Cousins on one leg, DeMarcus Cousins with no limbs is a better NBA player than Zaza Pachulia, who the Warriors were expected to be starting at center. So it's still going to be a massive upgrade for the Warriors, and even a 70% boogie is a very, very good NBA player. Because one of the things we've seen with the Achilles injury, and the reason that players don't get big contracts afterwards, is nobody's ever come back to it come back from it at 100% of what they were before. But we've seen people like Rudy Gay has come back, Wes Matthews has come back, and they've still been somewhat effective NBA players, just not quite as good as they were before the injury. And even a part of DeMarcus Cousins is still a really, really good NBA player. So the NBA is going to just get crushed by this Warriors team next year once DeMarcus Cousins is up and running. Now, a lot of people are saying that Oh, the NBA, I don't want to watch it anymore. It's, it's, and we know what's going to happen already. The Warriors were already the best team in the league before this. They're still the best team in the league. They're just the best team in the league by a wider margin. Don't fool yourselves. You're going to watch. And for me also, people are saying to me like, ah, oh, the NBA, worst product. I've been watching the Knicks for my entire life. There is no worse product than the Knicks. I'm still going to be watching. And here's the deal also. You want to see DeMarcus Cousins on the Warriors, whether you want to admit it or not, even if it's just to see the Warriors lose. So the first game that Cousins comes back to play for the Warriors, you're going to turn on the TV. You want to see how he looks. You want to see what the team looks like. They're going to be a spectacle. The NBA ratings have gone up every year for the last few years now, while overall people are cutting cords. TV ratings on the whole are declining, but the NBA ratings are still going up, and I still think that's going to happen next year. I do agree that it is a bit of a foregone conclusion that the Warriors are going to win the championship, but I'm still going to watch to see what happens, and I think a lot of people are going to watch a lot of Warriors games to root against them, or there's going to be bandwagon fans that root for them. Now, the other thing that this really has an impact on is the the Spurs have zero trade leverage with Kawhi Leonard. 
Kawhi Leonard's on a one-year deal. Nobody's giving up future assets to compete next year now. The Lakers aren't giving up like Brandon Ingram and Lonzo Ball to land Kawhi Leonard a year early. For what? They're not beating the Warriors next year. The, the Spurs got screwed in this DeMarcus Cousins signing. I didn't have a ton of leverage with Kawhi Leonard before. They have zero leverage now. I think it's going to be very hard for them to get any assets for Kawhi. Now, the other thing with DeMarcus Cousins that a lot of people I see complaining about is, oh, why would he, why would he take the, the mid-level exception to play for the Warriors? He's, he's just chasing rings. Yes, he's definitely trying to win a ring. But with that said also, I don't think there was a massive market for DeMarcus Cousins coming off the torn Achilles. Now, I'm not, I don't think that he couldn't have gotten more money. I'm sure that there is a team that would have said, we'll pay you two years, $30 million or something like that. But keep in mind this also. DeMarcus Cousins was in line for a $200 million contract before he tore his Achilles or whatever the, the Supermax is worth now. I think, I think it would have been somewhere in the neighborhood of $200 million. He tears his Achilles towards the end of last year, and there's no chance he's getting that money anymore. But with that said, that doesn't mean he could never get a max contract. He would have to sign a one-year deal this season, play well, prove he's healthy, that he could still play at an all-star level. Then he could go on the free agent market next year and sign the max deal. Now, there's been there's two big knocks against DeMarcus Cousins. One, obviously, the Achilles. And the second is that there's this idea that DeMarcus Cousins isn't a winning basketball player. He's a locker room cancer. And he could really knock out both of those knocks against him this year if he comes out, if he plays well, he could prove he's healthy. And if the Warriors win a championship, which they should, I think a lot of people will say that, oh, look, DeMarcus Cousins can contribute to a winning basketball team. Therefore, his stock goes up as a free agent. So I think that him taking the few million dollars less on a one-year contract could net him more money in the long run, which makes it more profitable for him. From that sense, uh, I want to talk about the baseball games. I don't know how many people want to listen to me talk about the basketball free agency anymore, but it's just on my mind. But the Rajon Rondo thing, real quick, I think is a terrible signing by the Lakers. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. They have Lonzo Ball there. I don't think the fit next to LeBron makes a ton of sense. I was looking up some of Rondo's shooting numbers on Synergy earlier, and as a catch-and-shoot three-pointer, three-point shot, Rondo was not good last year, or really first career. Everybody knows he's not a great shooter, but particularly on catch-and-shoots, last year on unguarded catch-and-shoot three-pointers, he shot 29%. That's where a lot of his looks are going to come with playing with LeBron. I I don't know that he could play with Lonzo Ball because neither of them are great shooters, so I don't think that fit makes sense. And then also, they signed him to a one-year $9 million deal. They gave up the rights to Julius Randle to sign Rondo, and the Lakers don't really have big men on the roster. They need big men. And Randall signed a two-year, $18 million contract with the Pelicans, which is essentially going to be a one-year, $9 million deal because the second year is a player option that he's going to decline to get a bigger contract in the offseason next year. So the Lakers could have gotten Julius Randall for the same exact money that they got Rondo for. And that is a general summary of my thoughts on basketball. And don't say you're not going to watch games next year because if you're a fan of the NBA, you're going to watch games. If you're not a fan of the NBA, you're not going to watch games. It's kind of like how my dad said that he was boycotting the Kanye West album because he didn't like things Kanye West said. My dad has listened to zero Kanye West songs in his entire life. He was never going to listen to a Kanye West song. So that's the comparison there. Uh, I thought it was interesting. NBA night, a lot of free agency stuff, and I'm sure that more things are still to come. And I'm still interested to see what ends up coming of the Kawhi situation also. 
to the baseball slate for tomorrow. We have a couple of high-priced options. We have a course field game again. And the way that I'm approaching the slate right now is I'm thinking I'm going expensive at offense and cheap at pitcher. There are some decent expensive pitchers in a vacuum, but there are some situations here that I think it doesn't make them worth paying up for. One, we have Clayton Kershaw, 12000 He's been on a pitch restriction since coming off the DL. He's struggled to stay healthy the last couple of years. Dodgers being extremely cautious with him. His two starts since coming off the DL, 55 pitches. Two, his first start back, then 68 pitches his last start. So I think that we see the pitch count go up again. But I wouldn't expect more than like the 80 to 85 range. So at 12,000, it's more than I want to pay for him until he's totally off the pitch restriction. I think Kershaw will be somebody to roster in the near future. Just not yet for me. Then we have Zach Greinke at 10900 Just not enough upside for me when we consider also the opportunity cost of some of the really good expensive offenses on the slate. So Greinke, generally good pitcher at home, high floor, not a super high ceiling, but not the direction I want to go on this slate. So a lot of the expensive pitchers, I, I think it's a lot of guys safe, some of them in good matchups but slightly overpriced, like Shane Bieber. Zach Eflin, uh, we have Jack Flaherty, who's pitched really well, but the Diamondback just got A.J. Pollock back from the DL, so that's going to be a tougher matchup for him. So the first pitcher I really am interested in as I go down is going to be Anthony Desclafini at 7,600. So he is going up against the White Sox, and a lot of the same things about Desclafini that I thought about tonight's slate for Luis Castillo, and that is that the White Sox are... Not great against right-handed pitching, 20th in WRC Plus at 94, so that's kind of towards the middle league, but 25.1% strikeout rate, so that's pretty high. And then Desclafini, his last few starts, has been pretty solid. Uh, Four starts, 16 fantasy points, 18.5, 16, 15. At 7,600, we only need 15 fantasy points for him to hit value. That's what he's been doing with regularity lately, and he's done it in a bunch of tough matchups. He's played the Cubs, uh, the Cardinals, he's been in Pittsburgh, which is... Not uh, not a super tough matchup, but not an easy one either. This is a much simpler matchup for him at home against the White Sox. Also, I bring this up a lot, but White Sox, American League team going to a National League park. I always like the National League pitcher in that spot because the offense's numbers are going to be worse than what we see on paper. They lose the DH, pitcher hits instead. So Desclafini, good spot for him. I like him at 7,600. I think that he's a good, sensible, cheap play. Then we have Marco Estrada, who's at 7,400. Estrada uh, hasn't really pitched well overall this year, but much better as of late. He wasn't great in his last start, but that was a game in Houston, so I'll give him a pass on that one. The starts before that, he pitched in L.A., scored 23 fantasy points, then 24 points against the Nationals, 29 against the Orioles, then a 20 fantasy point game against the Yankees. So a lot of tough matchups lately for Estrada, he's pitched fairly well, and now he's at home against the Mets. Mets obviously been struggling lately, one of the worst teams in the league. So Estrada, with better form as of late, I think makes sense as another cheap option at 7,400. The next guy I'm looking at is Chris Bassett, who is at 6,300. Bassett pitching at home, pitcher-friendly park against the Padres, who are 27th in WRC+. Plus against right-handed pitching at 81, also very high, 25.9% strikeout rate. Bassett has been better this year than he's been in previous years. He has a 2.82 ERA, 3.42 FIP. Uh, not super high strikeout guy, about 7.5 per 9 innings. But if we look at 
Bassett, just cheap price at 6300 plus matchup against the Padres. I think that Bassett should pay off the salary, and even if he's not a guy who's going to be scoring like 30 fantasy points or anything like that, I think in this matchup should be enough to get him in like the 15 to 20 point range, which would be fine for his salary. I think that he makes sense. And then one final pitcher who is a little bit riskier because he might not end up pitching, but it's Ryan Yarborough against the Marlins. So this should be Yarborough's time to start. Anybody who's followed the Rays bullpen situation generally goes that they have a few starters and they have the other position, which I have deemed the opener, which is they have a relief pitcher who's kind of like the closer, but instead of pitching the ninth inning, pitches the first inning. And the idea is they get to pitch the, you get a relief pitcher who's generally better than a starting pitcher, pitches the first inning against the, top of the other team's rotation, uh, top of the other team's order, who is their best hitters. And then you bring in your starting pitcher, who generally is not quite as effective as a reliever, but now he gets to face lesser hitters. And it's a more effective way to use that starter's innings, who's going to be pitching multiple innings. So for Yarbrough, this would be his turn to start the last time he pitched was five games ago against the Astros, and he's had some pretty solid bullpens. Uh, I don't even know what to call them. Long relief outings, bullpen, a bullpen start. Does it count as a start if you come in in the second or third inning? Well, whatever it is, he's had some good long relief outings, pretty solid this year, almost a strikeout per inning, sub-4 ERA, and also cheap price at 6200 In Miami, pitcher-friendly park against the Marlins, one of the worst teams in baseball against left-handed pitching. So Yarborough, Sometimes we'll get confirmation from a beat reporter like, oh, yeah, Yarborough is expected to pitch. So this is one of those things I would look on Twitter just to kind of try to get verification earlier to the game. Is Yarborough expected to pitch or not? This is his time to pitch out of the bullpen. It is just a little bit trickier of a situation than we're typically used to from somebody that we roster as a starter because he's not listed as the starting pitcher, the guy who's expected to throw innings on the DraftKings pitcher salary sheet or whatever you want to call where you select players from but I do think that Yarbrough pitches tomorrow at 6200 in a plus matchup I think he makes a lot of sense so those four pitchers Desclafini is my top choice and then it's probably Bassett two Estrada three Yarbrough four but I'd bump Yarbrough up a little bit probably ahead of Estrada if we get confirmation that Yarbrough is definitely going to be going tomorrow so moving into the offenses as I said I like the expensive offenses for tomorrow there's a course field game. We have the Giants playing in Colorado. I prefer the Giants side of the game to the Rocky side of the game, although I think that you can make a good case for both. I'll have more exposure to the Giants. Anybody who has been listening to the podcast for an extended period of time knows that I really like to target offenses against Marco Estrada. He was a cash cow for me to stack against last year, especially towards the summer months where he was just getting lit up. Uh, he had a 4.68 ERA, a 4.52 FIP last year, but was considerably worse the second half of the year. Ended up losing job in the starting rotation. Was in the bullpen to start the season this year for the Rockies and then lost his job in the bullpen, got sent down to the minors. He had a 6.23 ERA and 10 relief outings. Generally, ex- we expect pitchers to be better out of the bullpen than they are as a starter, and, and Sensatella was not good as a relief pitcher, and we'd expect him to be even worse than what he was as a reliever, as a starter. So Sensatella, I think, is one of the worst pitchers in baseball and makes a ton of sense 
to stack against him when he's starting a game at Coors Field. Giants pretty reasonably priced. They're actually cheaper than what the Rockies are. So Giants are my favorite stack on the slate. Rockies, I think, are worth rostering, but not a primary target for me. Another offense that I like a lot for tomorrow is going to be the Cincinnati Reds again. They are going up against Lucas Giolito, who also was really struggled this year. So Giolito, talked about on the podcast before, formerly one of the top pitching prospects in baseball. I guess he's still thought of in that kind of regard, but he has not been able to find success really at any level of baseball. He's always had really good stuff in the minor leagues, but it hasn't yielded great results. He's been a guy who has had ERAs in like the threes, as high as the fives in the minor leagues in 2016 in single A. He had a 5.14 ERA. Last year, he had a, what was it, a 4.94 FIP, actually had a lower ERA than that. But then this year, just a total train wreck, 6.59 ERA, 6.06 FIP, walking the same amount of guys that he's striking out. He's only had a few games this entire season with more strikeouts than walks. Gives up a lot of fly balls, gives up a lot of home runs, a lot of hard contact. So this is a spot for the Reds. I think they make a ton of sense to pay up for. And then the other thing that I've said about the White Sox in the past also, worst bullpen in baseball. So if you get the starter out early, it's not like all of a sudden you're facing a tougher pitcher who's coming in. It's just another garbage gas can who you're also going to be able to hit. So I think the Reds make a ton of sense in this spot, particularly the lefties. Scott Shebler, Jesse Winkler, Tucker Barnhart usually hits the top of the lineup, which is very valuable for a catcher, Joey Votto. Another good play. So the Reds, another team that I really like to stack. They are my second favorite offense behind the Giants. And then the third offense that I want to stack is going to be the Houston Astros in Texas against Austin Biebensdirks. So Biebensdirks this year actually is pretty solid numbers. 3.57 ERA, 3.24 FIP, 